Thank you for joining us again here at Homeland, the podcast. And if you just found us, welcome. My name is Frank Foreman, and I am the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School's Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. Our mission is to bring you yesterday's pioneers, today's leaders, and tomorrow's visionaries within the realm of Homeland Security. We recorded this episode during the 2018 APEX workshop. So for those of you who couldn't make it, we thought we'd bring it to you. Today, we're joined by Ms. Mona Barnes. Mona has acquired quite the background. She was the first female state command sergeant major for the Virgin Islands National Guard. She's been an entrepreneur, she's been a pastor, and she's a mentor to the youth, finding and harnessing their passions and visions and finding ways to turn those into successful ventures. Topping off her already full schedule, she is currently the director for the Virgin Islands Territorial Emergency Management Agency. Today, we discuss some of the trials, tribulations, and successes Mona and her peers experienced while responding to, mitigating, and working through the recovery efforts following Hurricane, Hurricanes Irma and Maria. So let's welcome Ms. Mona Barnes. The reason I asked for you to join us is because you sort of experienced some rather devastating uh, storms this last year. And the knowledge and experience uh, that you gained from that um, I think is valuable information for a lot of people. So why don't we start with that? Hurricane Irma back on September 6th, hurricane, followed 12 days later by Hurricane Maria on September 19th, mm-hmm. and the trials and tribulations that you had to contend with. Would you just go give us an overview of what you had to deal with and, and some of the lessons that you learned from that? Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, the first thing I want to say is I uh, just came out of doing a presentation. Your worst case scenario is never the worst case scenario. Uh, in our planning and preparing within my agency, we've always prepared for hurricanes. And I would always tell my staff, you know, if we haven't mastered how to respond to a hurricane, shame on us. Uh, well, it turned out shame on me because I never in my mind thought that we would have two Category 5 storms uh, within 12 days to hit our territory and, and just devastate all islands, St. Croix, St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. So kind of what happened was uh, around the 3rd of September, we, we knew uh, for sure that um, the storm, Irma, was coming in our path. And so we you know, activated our emergency operations center, went through all the protocols of having the FEMA IMAT team on ground, having the federal coordinating officer, the defense coordinating officer, and assets on the ground for immediate response. And so Irma came through and devastated uh, St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. And so uh, myself and the governor, we were based in St. Croix. And so what we immediately started doing was moving assets to support St. Thomas. Little did we know, you know, probably about three or four days into our uh, response, we didn't get a call from the National Weather Service saying to us, there's another storm that's following after Jose Maria. What went through your mind when you got told, we're already contending with this, and oh, more is coming? Disbelief. Disbelief, because I never thought that it would happen. However, recognizing that we still were in response for the three islands, you just got to keep pushing forward and and doing the work that's necessary. So the governor and I had uh, traveled to St. Thomas, got our boots on the ground, 
started coordinating uh, response efforts uh, for St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. And the one thing I, I, I have to say is, in looking back, that initial 24, 48 hours, I don't think I would do too many things different because we had already pre-positioned commodities within the territory. We already had online the military support that we thought would be needed. When we learned that Maria was coming in and then now shifting back to preparing again after we were just about ready to pivot to recovery for Irma, it was devastating. So Maria came through um, on the 19th, and um, so it affected St. Croix more now than St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island. But however, the heavy rain and wind uh, in St. Thomas then forced us to now have to go back to a response mode for St. Croix, St. Thomas, St. John, and Water Island, so the four islands. On top of that, uh, Puerto Rico was affected as well. And so the support that we would get from the neighboring um, island, that was not there. Our biggest things, uh, communication, the, the inability to communicate, it was critical. The first two, three days, we communicated from St. Croix to St. John via ham radio. Uh, so that's one of the programs that we're now pitching to our territory. We're going to go into the schools of having a, a heavy and solid ham radio uh, organization. Okay, so, so that actually is a really good point about ham radio and the ability for that to transmit. It's been around for, for years. Decades. Decades, yeah. And, and, and part of that decades that I've found is it's not a skill or a hobby that a lot of people still do today. Mm -hmm. So being decades, the people who are actually skilled at it are decades old and actually yeah. are passing away. Understanding this, it almost goes back to Morse code, that utilizing a system that is solid. Mm -hmm. How do we go ahead and, and uh, implement that mindset to have people learn how to use ham radio again? I think what we have to teach folks is, even with technology, there's some basic things that you still got to hold fast to, and ham radio is one. Even when we couldn't communicate, FEMA, they just deployed their, their chaos team, which is a civil... C-A-I-S. It's usually they just get on a truck with a bullhorn and put out information. And so even with technology, we still have to remember that basic fundamentals of how we communicate. Word of mouth, going, running next door and giving a message to someone and, and, and on and on and on. But I would say to you that that first 24, 48 hours after Maria was life-changing for me. It was because... You not only have to be a leader and respond to about, about 105,000 people in our territory, but you had personal effects as well. Uh, my mom lost her roof uh, during the storm, and my sister got a stroke, and she had to be, um, she left on one of the mercy flights. And so just staying focused on what my job, my overall job to the people of the territory, I wouldn't say it was challenging, but... I'm glad that I had prepared my family. And that's one of the things I want to stress to first responders, folks in emergency management or first responders. You got to ensure that your family, they're on board with what you're doing. Because the minute something happens, you've got to take care of a bigger population right, than right. your immediate family. And so once your family knows and they have buy-in, you know, the, the transition for you to really do your job becomes a lot easier. 
That's really interesting. We interviewed Brock Long, a FEMA administrator, and he identified a few components that are critical. One of them he mentioned is communications, which you had issues with communications. So I see the value in, in not just him addressing it, but you experiencing it. And our families. Ready.gov, FEMA has on mm-hmm. their site. There's things in there for law and fire to be able to prepare their families for just what you're talking about. Within the fire department, we expect our personnel to return to work. But how do you get them to return to work? Their families have to be prepared because our dogs, our cats, our brothers, our okay. sisters, our children, those are the two major areas, our pets and our families, why people can't come back to work. So yeah. are you implementing any type of program uh, for the islands so that your government employees and the citizens are being better prepared. I mean, the islands have great resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that comes from generations of people having to contend with the catastrophic events that you have mm-hmm. and always having to pick up and rebuild. Are you doing something that you're going to implement that will help the families of both coworkers and the community better prepare for the next type of uh, disaster? Well, I, I wouldn't say we're doing anything new. I think we just need to build upon what we already started, and that is the outreach and the PSAs that actually stress preparedness. We have what's called an emergency management council, which is actually my colleagues, the directors and commissioners and the governor's cabinet. And that's one of the things I always stress to them. You know, you are as prepared as your family is prepared. And right. so you got to ensure that your family has buy-in to what you're doing. Because once you know that your family can take care of themselves, it's a lot easier for you to go out and take care of someone else. So that, that has always been one of the uh, outreach and one of the recommendations that we give out of Vitima to our first responders and my colleagues. So with that, you've got major areas within your own mind in order to be able to address uh, your family and their safety. You've got major area and concern in, in your obligation to your work. So by taking one of those major things off your plate, did that allow you to uh, more effectively manage this situation? Yes, and, and you, you, you forgot one piece. I'm a pastor as well. You know what? And you, so, absolutely. That was yeah, one thing yeah. I wanted to bring up. I, I, yeah. I, the number of things that you are involved <laughs> with, Command Sergeant, State Command Sergeant Major, uh, emergency manager for the islands and a pastor, and I'm also the CEO of a home for the elderly as well. Oh, so, that's that's right. That's, yeah. So uh, <laughs> you're what a busy I would, person. Yeah. What I would say to you is the preparing of my congregation mm. to be resilient was. It, I mean, it worked so well because you had so many families uh, from within my church that took care of themselves, their families, and then their neighbors. And that's really what we should be doing as a church. And so once you begin to train people, it just spreads. It just spreads. So I was able to do my work as the director of ITEMA proper because I had prepared the other segments of my life, if I may say, mm-hmm. um, to be very resilient. And, and I just keep stressing to them, even the, the folks at the Home for the Elderly, 14 apartments, independent living, and we actually had folks on my staff to go in and train them how to be resilient. Uh, you know, how do you respond uh, to a significant event? And so I didn't really have to worry about them. They were more concerned about seeing me to make sure that I was okay. But the key is you just got to gotta get it in folks' mind that they got to stay prepared. So, so you've moved 
you've not moved. You've you've embraced the government's whole community approach to being prepared. Most definitely. And 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 in that, you're not just saying, "Hey, get prepared." You're providing guidance and being prepared. You are expecting the community through your efforts to be resilient enough to to take care of themselves while you're having to handle the bigger emergencies. Because I can can give you an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we first started doing PSAs back in 2015, you know, you kind of use the model that you get from FEMA and you have three days of water and food. And and I, you know, I sat down with my staff and my operations deputy said to me, she she said, you know, director, three days is not going to work for us. That's three days if you're in the States. She said, "Mm." and then I said, you know what? You're right. So we got to start messaging. You got to be prepared to stand alone for a week. Well, and, that's and you know what's funny is is uh, one in my efforts, one in my planning efforts. I, I tell the people it's it's not three days, it's not one week. I actually say be prepared for two weeks. Have a fourteen day plan, mm. and in your fourteen day plan, start out with your three days because it doesn't it does cost money to prepare this way. Correct. But build up, and if you could get to a week, great, because. Even in Los Angeles, where I'm out of, we are resource rich, but we're going to be overwhelmed in a catastrophic incident. Mm-hmm. We're going to be waiting for the resources to come, which is a lot easier for them to come to us than to the territories. Right. But even in that, we still have to be prepared. So sort of that transitions me into the question I had for you. Mm-hmm. Response to your area. You already mentioned that I mean, you have your own response capabilities on each island. Then you support each other through the islands. Your neighboring islands like Puerto Rico couldn't respond. Other federal government agencies coming from the mainland, you've got a tiered response matrix that seems to be very slow Mm -hmm. because of distance and access to the location. How do you address that? Well, the way we addressed it is our relationships with FEMA, the federal coordinating officer. Him and I have been friends, not just colleagues, friends for three years. The DCO. The same thing, the defense coordinating officer, the one that, you know, all the military uh, work that needs to be done goes through him. And what we did was, and, and we can do it for for hurricanes, uh, other significant events, i.e. tsunami, we can't, but we already had what's called pre-mission assignments. And so we knew, okay, if there's a Category 5 coming, these are the s- certain assets that we know we will need because we will be overwhelmed in, say, 48 hours, or 72 hours. So those were pre-planned. And so we could move them to the area. What caused a problem in these last two storms is as we were moving the, the Department of Defense assets by water, then Maria was coming. And so they had to push back out of the path. And so that delayed uh, commodities from coming in. It delayed the water. It delayed the uh, Marine uh, folks that were coming on to do debris clearance. And so... We kind of have it set. We just didn't have it set for two cat five in 12 days. Right. But a lot of it is pre-mission assignments. We, we know already the capabilities we have within the territory, how soon we could, we'll be overwhelmed. And so we try to get those, uh, that stuff moving to our area prior to the storm. And I would tell you for the federal government, by the 3rd of September, they had approximately about... 240 people already on ground, ready to respond. As a matter of fact, the FCO and his IMAT team, they rode out the storm. You mentioned about developing relationships, not in this interview, but when you were speaking. Can you delve into that a little bit? Yeah, that was one of the lessons learned, I I would say, for us in the territory. 
building bigger and better relationships with our nonprofit organizations. Immediately after the storm, if we had had uh, better relationships, for example, with Home Depot, they in St. Thomas, that, that, that building got blown through. And so if we had already had built relationships, there were a lot of supplies and, and stuff we could have gotten from them. We did it, but it was a couple weeks after, after the fact. But if it was already established, I think it would have been a lot smoother and a lot better. And that's, you know, helping with the volunteers. So you, have a, you had a lot of people come in to volunteer, but we just couldn't figure out where to put them, with whom, how to work it. That was another lesson learned. So on the volunteers, uh, and I don't want to get away from it too much, but mm-hmm. the convergent volunteers. You have some groups that are already preset, but now you're dealing with convergence. Are you developing plans to be able to handle all the people that want to help? Oh, yes, we are. Um, definitely, definitely. We have, um, since uh, Hurricane Maria, we have reestablished our VOAGs mm-hmm. on all three islands. So that will be, you know, going forward, that would be one of one less thing that we'll have to worry about because as the volunteers come in, we can just, you know, have them go with the VOAD groups. They'll, you know, look at their skill set, set them in place, and then they'll be able to respond. Because you, you have to remember, sometimes too much of anything still is not a good thing. Right. And you could you could have three, two, three hundred people that want to volunteer. But if you don't know the skill set, you don't know what they're, you know, what they're capable of doing, it, it can cause another chaos. Yes. Yeah, if, if I may say it like that. But I would say in the territory, again, the people were very resilient. People came out and they helped and they supported. They didn't wait to act in that, that catastrophic event. And so kudos to them. Well, and, and I mentioned this before, I look at our community uh, the whole community as the first responder. Yes. I look at the paid professional or the volunteer professional. That's hard. That's not really the way to say it. But I look at them as the emergency responder. So we are trained in, and respond as emergency responders. And we have the community that truly steps up. Mm-hmm. And they want to step up. So the preparedness efforts you're making are uh, commendable. And I, I really appreciate the, the work you've done with that. On your other lessons learned, how about your continuity of operations and maybe a secondary or tertiary work site? What do, you, what do you have to deal with that? Well, that is going to be one of the challenges for us in the territory. And just because of the landscape, you know, four islands, uh, anything that moves has to go by ear or sea. And we don't drive from one island to the next. We had a lot of government buildings that were compromised. Our coup was to go to the National Guard Armory. But then they had so many folks that came in to respond that was there. And then a portion of their building got compromised as well. And so we just got to go back to the drawing board and harden our structures. We have the opportunity right now to rebuild better, to rebuild stronger, and to harden our facilities. I think once that is done, then we will be able to then relook our continuity of operations. So so I, that's... Fascinating. Uh, we have areas throughout the country that New Orleans constantly being devastated. Seattle's on major fault line, built over the last hundred plus years, and and you've got a mix of different types of structures, different businesses. A catastrophic incident occurs somewhere. Do we rebuild what was there, or do we look at maybe rezoning, redistricting, being smarter about where buildings are put back up, and that on a government level? Seems simple. This is what we're supposed to do. But how do you address the families and the people from that area when you're, they're being told, oh, we want to rebuild, but not here. We want you to be moved over here. 
How do you address that on a public scale? Well, for the government, I will tell you, we don't have a choice because the majority of our government buildings are in an inundation zone for tsunami. Mm -hmm. We have an opportunity right now. For example, we have a school in St. Thomas that's in the inundation zone that has been totally destroyed. It's going to be demolished. There is no way, and I, I know Governor Kenneth Mapp, he will want that school back in that same area because we now have opportunity to, one, move it out of the inundation zone, and two, build it better, smarter, and harden it. So uh, we're looking at that. There were nine schools that were um, destroyed. Uh, we're looking at rebuilding six and just making it a lot harder. Then it, it, you know, then mm-hmm. it becomes a shelter. It's hardened, and so people are more safe. And Because even after these two storms, a lot of the shelters were schools. Mm-hmm. And so we now have to transition from, okay, maybe not using schools, something else, because then we still want to get school back and the children to get back into the school, you know, they, they don't be out for a very long time. Wow, that's been fascinating. I'm, we're going to have to wrap this up because of time, but I want to ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at that you can offer to other people in their planning efforts? How can they look to you for examples and ways forward for their planning efforts to address these type of situations? Well, I would say anyone in emergency management, they know that they have to have plans. But I want them to understand your plan becomes a guide. Don't get stuck on because it's in the plan, we have to do it this way. You got to adapt to your environment when the situation poses itself. Some people, after Maria was like, okay, so yeah, are you guys using the plans that you have? Yeah, for the, for the first 72 hours. Because what has happened to us is nothing that we prepared for. It was a worst case scenario, but it wasn't the worst case. Right. You had the worst case scenario <laughs> with another worst case scenario. And then a couple months later, tsunami warnings. Yeah. So now you're adding another layer of complexity to what you're contending Co- with. Correct. And so even, uh, thank you for bringing up that uh, tsunami. It wasn't a warning, it was an advisory. It, advisory. So let me, let me say that. And I have to keep saying that because some people were concerned as far as the response. But, you know, an advisory just simply means that there's been something in your region, but an inundation is not apparent. And so I thought about that because January, so here we go. The 6th of September, Cat 5, Irma. The 19th of September, Cat 5, Maria. And then we're in recovery, and then here comes January 10th, 10.59 p.m. to be exact. (laughs) You know, it comes up on my phone and into my 911 centers, tsunami advisory. We've done a lot of outreach, but I think coming out of those two storms, and then what happened is it came over on CNN and Fox Radio. And so it caused a panic in my territory. I mean, people actually drove to hills mm-hmm. in fear. And, you know, I understood and, you know, I, I got a Got a not so good publicity saying that I, you know, didn't prepare the people for a tsunami advisory. But I tried to explain to them, you cannot activate WIAS, which is the Wireless Emergency Alert mm-hmm. System or the EAS, the Emergency Alert System, for advisories. When you uh, trigger those um, warn those devices, 
it's because there is a warning and it's telling you that you have to move. I don't know if you're familiar with the we as. Oh, I'm familiar. And that's why when yeah. you clarified uh, the advisory <laughs> versus warning, I had to shy away. Yeah. I, I, I and so, you know, I, I told the people and even before uh, the legislature, I had to go before the legislature last week. And I told them, I don't mind you being upset with me right now because... I didn't do what you wanted me to do. But the one thing I know the people will do now, they'll pay attention. If they ever see something come across CNN or I send out an advisory via VI alert, mm-hmm. they're going to pay attention. And, and at the end of the day, the business of emergency management, I said it in my uh, presentation earlier today, if you're looking for accolades and for people to love you, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> because True. anything that goes right, they're going to say, yeah, but anything that goes wrong, you're going to get it just as bad or even worse. And so it's just a business that we're in. You can't predict when certain things are going to happen. But the key is you got to have that mind, and watch this, the passion to respond. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I would tell you what I do in emergency management as a pastor, as a business owner. I have the passion for people. It's just in me. I think everyone is born with purpose, and I think I've identified my purpose. I and think you to have, serve. too. I think you have. And you know what? To, to serve our community, yeah. the noblest of professions. And I really appreciate the time you've offered us today. And to our listeners, I hope you got something out of this because, again, I did, and I appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Frank. So there you have it, Miss Mona Barnes, Director for the Virgin Islands Territorial Emergency Management Agency. What I found interesting in this interview was the lessons learned from these events were heard. What I mean by this is the course correction FEMA is currently undergoing. In episode one of Homeland, the podcast, we interviewed Brock Long, FEMA Administrator. In that episode, he lays out his plan to adapt to the increased frequency and intensity the catastrophic events we've been experiencing. If you haven't listened to that episode, I'd recommend it. Also, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other previous ones, we ask that you share this show with your friends and peers. Also, subscribe. This way, each time we release an episode, it will be ready for you on iTunes, CastBox, or whichever platform you use. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host. Until our next episode, take care.